0: Acts chapter 16, verse 1 to 5, and the title of tonight's um, discussion is Enter Timothy. Two weeks ago, we dealt with a lesson that was entitled The Split, and that taught us that, because remember, Paul and Barnabas, they split, and that's quite intriguing that apostles would reach a point where they disagree with each other. And we learned through that, even apostles can sometimes disagree And decide to separate when it comes to ministry. And I think there were loads of lessons to learn about that. Those of you who were not here, you can do well to go listen to that or read the text. But if I had to summarize it, I would say the following. It's not necessary to consider someone you disagree with as your enemy. You can disagree with somebody and he's not your enemy. It's okay to disagree. And it isn't necessary, necessary to work with that person. In the same part of the vineyard. You don't have to do that. Sometimes it's very hard. To operate with some people. To eat in the same place. And work in the same place. Just hard. Even the apostles struggle with it. Okay. Also it's okay to disagree. And move on. As long as the mission. Doesn't get altered. Or hindered. So as long as the work continues. But Perhaps. The most beautiful thing for me about that whole lesson is how Mark and Paul seems to have reconciled later on. We don't know how it happened, but Mark had become extremely helpful to Paul in his ministry. Paul later on writes, which is incredible. So the two have a ding-dong, and then they separate, and then later on we find out they're good mates. And they actually do ministry together. That's really cool. Anyways... These two guys had now separated into two different areas of ministry. Paul and Silas had gone one direction, and Barnabas and Mark, they've gone another direction. But they're going to preach the gospel. And one of the things I pointed out is, that's actually good. In this instance, division was good. Right? Because now you're going you're to you're take on two territories. You were going to do just one territory, but now you're going in two different directions. Which is pretty cool. Bonabus and Mark climbed on the ship. I'll show you the map now so you know where we are. Maybe let's go there so long. Um, so that's that's the first missionary journey. That's what we've dealt with so far. Is they leave from Antioch, they go to Cyprus, they go all the red line is their entry into Gentile territory. Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derby. There they turn around, they go back. Lystra, Iconium. And they. But except they they didn't go to Cyprus, they just sailed back to Antioch. That's the first missionary journey. But now they are back in Antioch, all right? By the way, who did this first missionary journey? Who were the guys involved there? It was Paul and, and Barnabas, right? So now Paul and Barnabas are separate, right? And they've each got their own person that they are mentoring. So Barnabas and Mark, they climb on the ship there, and they sail for Cyprus, That's where they go. They go back to that island over there. Okay? But Paul decided, nah, I'm not going to get on a boat again. I agree with him. Have you been on a boat? Who's been on a boat and vomited your lungs out? (laughs) Yeah. We went on a cruise ship. I thought, cruise ship? He's going to cruise along. I had to take medication the whole time I was there. It felt like my world was ending. I was getting sick. So me and Paul, we are the same there. No, we're not going on the boat And so he took Silas with him and traveled through there, Syria and Cilicia. Stayed on land, but basically sort of in the same, to the same area, same goal. Um, It's actually funny. They, They sort of had the same destination, but they took two different routes. Paul and Silas going that way to that same area. Barnabas and, and Mark, they also sort of go to the same area. They just go two different ways. And when I was looking at this, I was thinking when I was a kid, um, we stayed about a mile from the ocean. And my sister and I, we would walk together to the beach, but we'd never come back together. Because at the beach, we would have a fight. <laughs> and she, would, she would walk, and I would, uh, she would walk ahead of me and think I'm going to get lost. And I would Walk behind her sneaking so she doesn't know I'm actually behind her. She thinks she's alone. And the one day I walked up and the the roads were like um, in parallel to each other and on a hill. And I went the upper road and she went the lower road and, and she hid behind the bush waiting for me. And I could see her from the top hiding from me. So these two guys, they're upset with each other, but they're sort of going in the same direction. Can you imagine they arrived at the churches in Iconium? And they were not together. What that would have looked like. Where's Barnabas? Who's this guy that's with you, Paul? How would they explain that? This is why we don't argue in front of the children, right? Anyways, we don't know what happened. But it's just interesting to, to think about it. So this is where we are at. This is a map of Paul's second missionary journey. And that's what we started with our last lesson two weeks ago. But basically, there's Antioch. Paul and Silas, they are walking up there into Cilicia. The text doesn't tell us uh, what happens when um, Barnabas and Mark go to Cyprus. So it's sort of the story now. It's like Luke says, okay, who am I going to follow now? I'm going to follow Barnabas and Mark or am I going to go with Paul and and Silas? And he he follows, he decides to follow Paul and Silas. So I hope we're all on the same page as to where we are at. A few questions. Who had the biggest impact in your life? Was there a person, a mother, a, f- a friend, a mentor, a, a preacher? Who's had the biggest impact in your life? And what value do you add to that person? And why would you say that person had a big impact in your life? And maybe I could attach to that: is Do you have a big impact in somebody's life? Interesting, I'll, I'll share this with. Uh, you guys um, because brother Dave is sitting here so old um, Misty I don't know if you you met her she she came to church with her husband and her son they've been here for about a month or so she said she sat there in the back when she came the first Sunday and she's like is um, that Mr. Martin sitting over there you taught her an English class and we had them over for lunch yesterday and and she said something, you did something incredible for her when she was at school. I can't remember what the story was. But it's interesting how a teacher can have impact in children's lives. They don't even know it. She still remembers it to the day. I can't remember. She did explain. Did you, did you hear? What was it? Oh. So she, yes, that's what's right. She arrived at school, like, sad. And you asked her, like, why are you sad? Oh, no, no, my grandmother or whatever, I can't remember where it was, is sick. And then um, you said, well, why are you here? Go back home. Go help your your grandmother. And then you went to the office and signed her out. Yeah, well, she remembers it. That's powerful. That's very powerful. Anyways, just an example. Well done, brother. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Associated with that, do you have a mentor and a mentee? And I've noticed that lots of people don't even think about this, don't even ask this question. Is there somebody in your life that mentors you? And are you mentoring somebody that's a mentee? And if you do, great. If you don't, why not? Do you see value in it uh, or not? Uh, thirdly, what is the greatest motivating factor for all church decisions? Um, I know these are loaded and wide questions, but I'm just Sort of doing this to get us an indication, give us an indication of where we're going. How does a church make decisions whether we should do something or not do something? Whether we should, for example, something that recently came about was uh, we wanted to change the, the the church building on the outside. Why would we do that? Because we just it's time, or and I'll, I'll tell you the reason why it was done. It was done because we. Um, represent Christ, and we don't want people to drive past and think that um, we don't take care of what God has given us, for example, and so it's uh, attached to our identity, if we want to reach the community, we've got to show that we um, at least take care as stewards of what God has given us, so, and then fourthly, what is one thing you could change about yourself to be a more effective connector A connector is a person that's capable of engaging another person, a stranger, being able to connect with that person, have a conversation. Why is this important? Well, if we want to reach people and help them connect to Christ, we've got to be able to connect with them. And the better we can connect with them, the better we'll be able to help them connect with Christ. What is it about you that you would like to change a little bit to make it more easier for you to connect with people. Okay, some things to think about. With that said, let's go into the text. We are Acts chapter 16. Just five verses tonight. But you know that means nothing. <laughs> Talk for an hour on five verses. But I'll keep it short, okay? Paul came to Derby And then to Lystra. Where a disciple named Timothy lived. Ah, here comes a new character into the story. Whose mother was Jewish and a believer. But whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Let's go back just to make sure that we have a a map here. So Timothy is from this area here. Derby, Lystra, Iconium. We're not sure exactly which town he's from, but Paul arrives there and he meets this young man, Timothy. Now, what happened in these towns previously? Um, Remember, quick question, quick test to see who listens on Sunday nights. How many times did Paul visit these towns? Who'd like to guess? Counting tonight. Oh, Demilt, you're a champion. Yes. Went the first time, the first time into those towns, taught people, they obeyed the gospel, many did. Then he turned around in Derby and he went back and visited those same towns again. They went to Antioch. Now he's going the third time on his second missionary journey to visit those same towns again. Thank you, brother. What happened in Derby? Well, let me remind you, nothing crazy. The the text simply says this. There's just one verse. They preached the gospel there and won a large number of disciples. That's all the Bible says. Maybe Timothy was one of them. I'm not sure. Um, And that was the turning point. That was the, the point where they said, okay, we've gone far enough. Now let's go back. What happened in Lystra? This is where Paul healed the lame man. And the people thought that he and Barnabas were gods. Do you remember that? Yes. But Jews had followed, so they wanted to make sacrifices to these guys. But 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 the Jews had followed the apostles from Iconium. The two towns away, they followed sort of behind the the, the rocks, spying on these guys, getting to um to Lystra, and then they also came from Antioch, sorry by the way, and then they turned to the crowd, the people that were just gonna sort of worship the apostles, turned them around said, let's kill them. And they dragged Paul outside of the city and they stoned him. That's what happened in Lystra. I think Timothy was from Lystra. Because it just seems like that's what the text is saying. Paul came to Derby and Lystra where a disciple named Timothy lived. Timothy couldn't have lived in both towns. But however, so I would choose the last one. Maybe Timothy was there. The text says that some of the disciples came around Paul. And he stood up and where did he go? Back into town again. He needed a place to stay there. Either way, we, you know, I don't want to fill in where, where the Scripture does not speak. But I think Timothy was probably from that, from that town. Although scholars debate this, I, I think that's, that's where he lived. Now, look at this text. 2 Timothy 3, verse 10 to 11. Now, the books of 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy are letters written by Paul to this young man. The same guy that we read about in Acts now. All right? And look at, we, can, we can pick up a few things about the relationship. Paul writes to Timothy... You, however, can you do me a favor? The kids are running around inside there, and they're distracting me a little bit. Thanks, babes. It's not my kids. Here, <laughs> yep, they're dancing up and down there, and I want to laugh at them, and I <laughs> <laughs> yes. or elbow them. You, you, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, my faith, patience. Love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings. What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra? The persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. So Paul says to Timothy, you know what happened to me in Lystra and Iconium, right? You know what it is that I went through. So there's that that connection between the two of them. I, I wouldn't be surprised that Timothy was there when Paul was stoned. I can't make that judgment, but I wouldn't be surprised if he, he was there and he knew about this pretty well, okay? Um, we also know that Timothy was very young. Look at chapter four, verse 12 of 1 Timothy. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. But set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. So um, it seems like when Paul wrote this letter, 1 Timothy, it was about 10 years after Acts chapter 16. That's what the scholars say. And so they suggest that he was most potentially a boy under the age of 20 um, by the time that w- when Paul first met him. This, the, another thing about Timothy, not only that he was a young man, that he was from Lystra, but... It seems like he knew the scriptures pretty well from a young age. But as for you, 2 Timothy 3.14, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That's a powerful statement. I, I didn't do it for this lesson. I apologize about that, that I didn't study that. But if I remember correctly, that term from infancy is sort of like since you were a baby, you've known the Holy Scriptures. So this kid grew up hearing the Word of God. Okay. It seems like someone must have taught him pretty well. Someone must have. And it wasn't his dad. Why? Because he was a Greek, most probably a pagan. His dad was an uncircumcised Gentile, the last person that would have taught him. So where did he learn? Who guided him? Well, Paul knew his mother and his grandmother by name, right? I'm reminded in 2 Timothy 1 verse 5, of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother, Louise, and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. Incredible verse, right? Paul says, "No, I, I not only know you; I know where you come from. I know your grandmother, and I know your mother. It seems like two incredible um, ladies, and they were probably Paul's first converts in this area." Now the text says, if we if we go back quickly, the text says the verse two. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. So this young man had really a great, he he had made a big impact in those towns among the believers. He, he, He had a good reputation among the believers. He was standing out. Now, two thoughts stand out for me when I talk about these things. Firstly, the value of parental mentorship is immeasurable. It's immeasurable. Timothy had two ladies in his life that transferred two things into his life. The one was faith. Paul says, the faith that lived in your mother now lives in you. They transferred that faith. And secondly, they taught or transferred the scriptures onto him. Because they did it from a young age. This in turn produced good character that made him stand out in the church. Pretty cool. Just two things. Believe that God exists and know the Bible. Two simple things that we can teach young people and that will make them stand out in character. The second thing is this. The value of young mentees is immeasurable. The value of young people being taught the word of God is immeasurable. In the next verse, we're going to get there just now, We will see that Paul wants to take Timothy with him. So he meets Timothy and he's like, dude, you need to come with me. Why? Why? Because Paul's going to go on further. Why does he need a young guy? Let's say an 18-year-old young man to go with him. What value does he see in that? Paul revealed his game plan for us in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 2. There's a Bible college in South Africa, Church of Christ, Bible college. This is their key verse. It's on the emblem. And the things, this is Paul talking to Timothy, the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. This is mentorship. This is transferring faith, transferring knowledge. This is doing what his mother had done to him. And what his grandmother had potentially done to his mother. You see it goes from one generation to the next generation. It flows over. So I think this was Paul's strategy. Paul believed in mentorship. Jesus did too. And that lies at the heart of discipleship. Paul was mentored by Gamaliel. And he was also surrounded by other men um, that he mentored. I think that we have to offload what we learn onto others persistently we have to be continuously looking for people to whom on whom we can offload what we learn and what we know just think about it for a moment what what do you know and what have you experienced in this life who knows a lot of stuff Yeah, in different directions maybe. I think that stuff needs to be offloaded. You know what's one of the saddest things in the world when great men die? Is when they take all of that stuff with them to the grave that they've learned in this life. And they haven't offloaded it onto somebody else. Isn't this the most powerful thing about Jesus? And I've said this a million times. He had three years with those disciples. And he offloaded in those three years, knowing he wasn't going to be here forever. It's incredible. This is extremely important. So, if you know some stuff, quick question are you offloading it? And on who are you offloading it? Are you looking for people to offload to? When Paul saw Timothy, he said, You're coming with me. You are coming with me. Why? To do his laundry? To make food for him? No. To be trained. To be trained. Unlike many people in ministry today, he had no fear of Timothy being a threat to him. You see, that's one of the key reasons why leaders don't want to train leaders. I'm scared you're going to take my position. In the kingdom of God, that's not how it works. In the kingdom of God, it's great if there's multiple people who can do what you can do. And any business, those of you who've been in business, Doug, I mean, if, you have, if you've got a bunch of all-rounders that can do everything at that factory, you know, white gold place, imagine you've got somebody that can do everything. That'll be your most valuable person, right? In the kingdom of God, it's the same thing. We have to be able to teach people. And, be, and, 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 not, and in the church, this often happens. We don't want people to infiltrate our space of what we do. You know what's honorable when you can train somebody else to do what you can do? That's incredible. Jesus was preparing people to take his place. And sadly, that's often why, why, why the next generation often struggles. And one of the struggles in South Africa has been is that there was this government that has created an incredible country with the, with the dollar and the rand was basically equal. The economy was as strong as America's economy, which is unique for an African country. And then in 1994, with the political racial situation, they gave the whole government over, just like this, to uh, our African brothers and sisters. And they couldn't handle it. That's why today it's 19 rand to $1. It all went pear-shaped because the transfer of information did not take place. It wasn't carefully carried over to the new government. Every generation is struggling with the same thing. We've got to transfer it over. How you do that, that's the challenge, right? Those of you who've had kids, how you do that? That's maybe a discussion for another day. So Paul did not see Timothy as his threat. He knew that one day when he is in prison, it would be really beneficial to have somebody else that can do what he does and knows what he knows out there running around for Jesus. That's why he left Paul at Ephesus to continue with the work there. He needed trustworthy people around him. He knew the territory was way bigger than him. The kingdom of God wasn't about his space. It was about God's space. And so he didn't see mentorship as a, a problem. He didn't see Timothy as somebody that competes with his ministry. He saw Timothy as somebody who could help him complete the mission. Um, so, so Paul had great use for Timothy later as he was mentored on the mission. I've got a, I think I've got a statement here. Mentorship leads to expansion and multiplication. The lack thereof leads to stagnation. When we don't transfer what we know and train others to do what we can do, we are limiting, we are keeping it all in, and it dies with us. Examples in the church. You know, I could say, well, you know, we've got to teach the younger men how to do the Lord's Supper, for example. Teach younger men to lead um, singing. Teach the ladies to teach um, children Sunday school. That's usually the things that we talk about. But if you go read the mentorship content of Paul to Timothy, you see it was much more wider and deeper than that. It's not just about training somebody how to do a menial task in the church. It's about, uh, Paul writes to Timothy and says to him, I want you to teach others the oracles of God's ways. Teach others how to be a disciple. What does Paul say, uh, I think it is to Titus, older women, train the younger women how to love your husbands, for example. That's the type of stuff that we've got to carry out. Be an example of integrity, develop leaders, Enc- encourage different groups of people to mentor those below them. I mean, there's so much in the books of Timothy and Titus. Um, I don't think we have time for that. The principle is just this. We've got to find ways to transfer this. All right, so that's into Timothy. So Paul wanted to take him along on the journey. So he circumcised him. Because of the Jews who lived in that area. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. It's interesting for me that that's just sort of a few sentences. So he circumcised them, as if it was just a quick, okay, let's just sort this out quickly. Like, let's go cut our hair quickly. <laughs> yes, for crying in a bucket, this is a, yeah, let's go cut off a piece of your body that has been there for the last 20 years. This is a big deal. Picture this. Paul in his back pocket is carrying a letter that clearly states, you don't have to be circumcised to go to heaven. Remember, that's part of the mission. They've been down to Jerusalem. Remember, there were Jews that came to Antioch and said, no, 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 Jesus is not enough. You've got to be circumcised as well. Remember that? Then they go down to Jerusalem and the church in Jerusalem gives them a letter and says, give this letter to the Gentiles. This comes from Jerusalem. Just four things you have to focus on and circumcision is not one of them. So he's got a letter in his pocket saying you don't have to be circumcised, essentially. And now he goes and he circumcises Timothy. (laughs) Yes, what a contradiction. He got, he got, he got, surgically challenged. <laughs> Guys, I don't know if you've seen. You, you get circumcised. It's not like okay, tomorrow we go for a jog. I wouldn't want to experience that, to be honest with you. I, uh, you know, some some insider info. My two boys were circumcised. I think it was within the first week. It was one of the most horrific experiences of my life. Goodness gracious, and but. It took a few days for them to to recover and and to feel comfortable. They say an adult male is ten times worse. So can you imagine Timothy? You want to do what? (laughs) It's like peace. I thought you guys just came from Jerusalem and said we don't have to do this. And now you want me to do this? I don't know about that. I'll just stay at home. You go. See you later, alligator. The key reason why he had the surgery was what? effective evangelism it was about the mission Um, essentially Paul had sort of two two options well I don't even know how I want to state this but you you cut off what will hinder the mission it's a principle I, I I learned through this you cut off what hinders the mission and we as a church have to talk about that as well What is it that hinders the mission, that makes it difficult for us to reach people? Cut it off. Or keep what will strengthen the tradition. Those two options. Maybe you have to go think about it. Sometimes we want to keep things even though it hinders the mission. And we want to keep it because it's tradition. And I think you know which one we should be doing. Sometimes we have to cut off things, even though we've been doing it for 40 years a certain way. You've got to cut it off if it's going to make it better for the mission. So I see this as a perfect illustration of what the churches often struggle with in so many ways. We struggle to cut off because we keep looking back at the way that things have always been. It worked 10 years ago, so it will work now. No, not necessarily. The truth is that we find it hard for things to change. We want to get stuck to what we're familiar with. Imagine Timothy saying to Paul, No, I don't want things to change. This is my body. I don't want it to change And you've got a letter in your pocket that says it doesn't have to change for crying in a bucket. What's wrong with you? Paul says, yes, Timothy, your body will never be the same again. But this can open many doors for the gospel. Would you support this church if it will never be the same as it has ever been? Everything changes. Would you support this church if everything changes, but it reaches the lost people in our community more effectively? Or would the tradition be so strong that you, you wouldn't accept it? What is really the motivating factor for why we do what we do? Okay. Okay. Let me explain the situation a little bit further. It's like Paul is saying, if I take this uncircumcised guy with me, it will be very difficult to preach to the Jews. It makes sense. Remember, what was the first place that Paul would usually go to? The synagogues. And it seems like if Paul had a guy with him that was uncircumcised, they were not going into that synagogue to go and preach. They would not allow Paul and Timothy there. Also, imagine... Paul goes back to these towns where they wanted to kill him. And he, he, he faces those same guys again that wanted to kill him. They were Jews. And they meet him in the marketplace. Say, okay, here you are again, troublemaker. Who is this with you? Oh, no, this is Timothy. Well, he's a Greek. His father's a Greek. He's uncircumcised. Do you think that would make things easier for him or harder? Of course it would make it harder for him. So Paul adapted his ministry strategy so significantly for people outside the faith. He led Timothy to bleed, to never be the same again for who? Those outside the faith. Timothy, are you willing to bleed for the lost? Are you willing to have your body permanently changed for the lost? So we can effectively reach them. So that nothing can hinder us from going forward. And Timothy is an incredible person because he's like, yeah, I don't need this to be saved. But I will do it for the sake of Jesus Christ and the cross and for the Gentiles. I'll do it. Let's do it. I will bleed to save others, not myself. Now, people will often bleed to save themselves. But how many would bleed to save others? So, some people won't use words or money or time or energy to save others. Look at this text Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I'm not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak, to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means, I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. Now, I have, um, I remember I was in in ministry in Cape Town, and uh, I wanted to be used by God. And one area of my life that I just really picked up, I was really struggling with, is in the area of reaching people, evangelism. I did not like that. I wanted to, I was comfortable by myself, and I was comfortable with preaching the word every week that was great and that that was exciting i I could do that but this evangelism thing i I struggled with that and i prayed a lot about it now ask god to to teach me and and to help me and i still ask god to help me with that it's a struggle it's difficult connecting with people Uh, um it's even harder going to a different country where the culture is different trying to understand people and helping them understand me it's it's hard um but over time, I've, I've learned that God, um, that, that there are certain things about me that needs to change to be able to connect better with people. I can't expect people out there to change. It's the same with, with Paul. Paul wasn't saying to Timothy, listen here, um, dude, um, you just go as you are. Don't get circumcised. When we meet them along the road, we'll tell them, hey, man, you don't need to be circumcised to have Jesus. So let us into the synagogue. You are wrong. We are right. That would not have worked. Let's change you, Timothy. Let's make you the change in order to meet them where they are at. Because they are not there. And so over the years, I've seen how God has helped me to slowly but surely tweak certain areas of my personality. If you're a rigid person... With a rigid personality style. You're only going to fit in and connect with people who are as rigid as you. Like Lego blocks. But if you are made of clay, you could slot in anywhere. Jesus, if you go look at his personality, he was capable of communicating with anybody. He had that way about him. Whether it was a woman or a man, he could do it. Whether it was a king or a peasant, he could do it. I wanted to be like that. So a statement came to my mind. We need to be socially malleable in order to be palatable for non Christian people. I couldn't find better words to express what I'm trying to say. We gotta be capable of being shaped, we gotta break down some of our rugged edges to connect with people so that we are palatable. In other words, people will find us tasty. Some people, you really, to, to connect with them, you really need an acquired taste. A Christian shouldn't be that way. A Christian shouldn't be an acquired taste. We, I, in, in the first five years of our ministry, we were living in wine country, and people were drinking wine, and I couldn't get myself to like the stuff. And that's where this word palatable comes from. It must be, you must feel it in the palate, and people swing it in the glass. I'm like, what are you looking at, bro? Put it in the mouth, eat a piece of cheese. How does that change anything, man? It's disgusting. How do you get yourself to like something? Well, change the wine, put some sugar with, it, and I'll like it. Same. Christians should be the type of people that are easily tasted. If I, if I, that tastes sweet, right? So, I mean, be like clay, be pleasant, be a pleasant aroma for people. And some of the ways I've picked up over the years, some of the things that I've adapted in my personality to be able to connect with people is I've become less dogmatic. If you walk around and everything's black and white and you, you tell everybody how wrong they are, that doesn't work. That doesn't create connection. That separates you from people. I'm not saying there isn't a space for dogma. I'm just saying it comes later. Um, Focusing on truth helps a lot. When you focus on truth, what's really true, because that you can agree and the person can agree on. That creates rapport. Instead of going on fairy tales, which is something that really goes on with YouTube today. Communicating things that are relevant. Talking to people that's relevant (coughs) and real. Really showing that you care about people, being genuine. That builds rapport. But to reach that point, you really got to care about people because they can see fake. Um, Not being stuck up. I hope you know what that means. You know, you don't want to go anywhere. You don't want to do anything. You don't want to eat any different food. Ladies and gentlemen, I've eaten some really disgusting food in my life just to be able to connect with people. I've eaten 10 times more than I should have just because I wanted to connect with people. You can't be like, oh, I don't eat that, so I'm not coming to your house. Oh, sorry, Tim. I'm not referring to you, brother. I know, the, the, I know, I know there's certain things you don't eat. You know, I, I, I <laughs> you've got other ways of connecting. Okay, I'll, I won't put that judgment on you. I'm just saying what has helped with me. Um, and another thing, having fun and being humorous. You know, people don't want to connect with people. It's like rigid and serious the whole time. You don't want to hang around with people. It's normal. Normal. I'm a human. I like laughing. God sits in the heavens and laughs, right? Um, I also feel that it is important that when you are in the world, that you are successful in the world, that you give your best. You become a great teacher. You become, if you're an engineer, you become the best engineer you can be. If you're a manager, you become the best manager you can be. Because... People will respect you because of that. Because you're good at what you do. So b- doing your best in the, in, and seeking success in the normal world opens people up to you. Oh, he's a normal person. It's not a monk hidden away in, as a recluse in a, in a mountain cave. It's a normal human. You can connect with a normal human. And studying, studying various aspects of society so you can keep a conversation. My wife always says to me, she says, Alfredo says, you know so much. I know nothing. Every conversation I have with somebody, I'm learning from them the whole time. Because they like talking about this stuff. and, And they feel good when they're talking about this stuff. But I'm learning their craft. Two years from now, I meet somebody else that's doing the same craft. Now I've got something to talk to them about. Because now I understand their world. And when you understand their world, it's easier to pull them into your world. Why do all of this? To connect with people, to build rapport with them. And you can do that without sacrificing your convictions of the gospel. The last verse says, And so because of this, the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in number. Beautiful picture. The liberty that came from Jerusalem caused the church to grow. It strengthened their faith and the church grew. Restricting where God is not restricted causes the church to stagnate. We see the opposite take place here. Freeing up where God is freed up causes church growth. This is why it is important to have clarity on the freedoms that we have in Christ. Interesting for me, they are free from circumcision. They preach a gospel without circumcision, yet they circumcise themselves. We are sons that choose to become slaves. We don't give what He wants. We get to give God more than He requires. And I think that ties in with this morning's um, lesson as well. We don't give because it's a law. We give because we want to. Because of the grace on the cross. Similar to Timothy I don't circumcise myself so I can go to heaven because God expects that of me. I get circumcised because I want to, for the sake of the kingdom, reach as many people as possible. And if this hinders it, sorry, you're getting cut off, buddy. Even though it isn't fun. Thoughts?